0: Marie Henan, thank you so much for joining me. It's a real honor to speak to you. You're one of the leading criminal defense lawyers in the country, uh, very widely known and respected. Um, I've come across you uh, throughout my life and I'll explain a bit how, but um, just for starters, I usually ask my guests to talk a bit about their background. Now I've read your book and I'll take this opportunity to oh plug you. your book and say it was a, it was a great read. And I'll try not to repeat what you've already written, because it goes into a lot of detail about your background. So we'll kind of use this as a springboard more than uh, give you the opportunity to go from there and not necessarily repeat what's there. But for anyone who wants to know about your background, I strongly suggest you read the book. Now, um, I want to start, in fact, by asking about your introduction to Eddie Greenspan. I'm also an, an immigrant to Canada. I came in high school, and one of my first... Uh, I guess, experiences or exposures to a lawyer was that there was a kid a year older than me who um, was just got his license. I don't know if it was his full license or or whatever, but he took his parents' car and uh, there may have been alcohol involved. He landed up crashing into a cop. And there was so much talk in the school about how this kid's life is going to be ruined. And then one kid hushed everyone up and said, he's going to be fine he just hired Eddie Greenspan to defend him. So, uh, you know, that actually worked out. And I know this guy landed up having, uh, you know, getting through it. And now he's a successful uh, person that uh, was behind him. But I mean, that was one of my first um, exposures to a lawyer to Eddie Greenspan in Canada. He had such a reputation of a good criminal defense lawyer. So, in your book, you say your first exposure to him was when he called at 11 p.m. roll call uh, at, at the firm. And uh, that was your first really introduction to him. So uh, after that, I want to know what was your first meeting with Eddie and Mark Rosenberg like? Um, you know, Was it a grueling interview or once you were in the firm, how, how did they treat you from uh, the get go?
1: No, there, there was no interview. I mean, uh, Eddie was not going to sit there and, and spend time, waste his time uh, talking to me about my background. Uh, it would have been, and I don't have a clear recollection, it was straight to work, really. It was, you know, here's the assignment. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what I need you to do. And you get going. It, it um, you didn't start uh, by developing a personal relationship in that firm. It, became that because you work so hard you spend so much time and in the course of the life of a case which is so profoundly stressful obviously you you know you're discover whether you have similarities whether you have the same sense of humor and all of that and that developed um but it wasn't the starting point the starting point was get to work and and you know help the clients and that's that's initially what it was mark was much quieter um more reserved, you know, often would not interact with uh, articling students uh, until several months into it, um, but had a wicked sense of humor. He was a really, really funny person, incredibly warm. Um, both of them did. Eddie was just an incredible, uh, incredibly funny person. And, and, you know, Mark had to warm up to you and ultimately did. You know, both uh, became very important figures in my life, not only when I was there, but after I left, I, I continued uh, to have a, a, a close relationship with both, or what I would say is a close relationship. I, I spoke to them frequently, uh, would get together. Uh, so it, it continued beyond beyond that. But there, there's no question that the bond, which uh, was also a, a part of what um, we would discuss constantly, was locked. We were people who loved law, loved cases, loved gossip about cases. I mean, that that was the main, one of the main topics of conversation for us, always. Mm-hmm.
0: Incredible. And I mean, one of the points of this podcast is so we can all learn from the best lawyers out there. And in your opinion, in your perspective, what really made Eddie and, and Mark such good lawyers? I mean, there's a lot of smart people out there. There's a lot of committed people lawyers out there who care for their clients? What was really that added added value that made him the best, so to speak?
1: Well, I, I think they had um, different qualities that I've, uh, I wrote about that. Uh, I think for Eddie, um, first of all, I was comp- uh, a big fan before I went there. He was the only person I wanted to work with. And he was the person that I believed uh, sort of um, uh, really captured what I thought a criminal lawyer, defense lawyer should be uh, in terms of the quality. Go into that a bit. Well, fearless, um, uh, resolute, uh, committed to their client, um, smart, intellectually rigorous, uh, a lover of the law. None of this was uh, from the hip. So, you know, I think people have no understanding, actually, or very little understanding that what they were seeing in court when Eddie you know, did a, a brilliant cross-examination, that there was a great deal of work that went into that. That was not impromptu. He was not a person who stood up and cross-examined off and could do brilliant cross-examinations, but he was far more thoughtful, far more strategic, far more forensic than than people could understand when you see the final, uh, final uh, product. Uh, The one thing that he had, I think, of many qualities uh, that I think distinguished him was an extraordinary, extraordinary instinct for um, people and the moment and cross examination. He really had a a feel for the witness and, you know, those rare moments. Those are the moments where you see sort of brilliant advocacy um, because he had an instinct of, of... how to go or or where to go with the witness? Uh, he could feel where he thought he could get a witness to admit perjuring themselves over and over again, and that was not scripted. That was not prepared. Those were moments that you you just you felt intuitively, and so there is a there is an extraordinary amount of work. But then there is this component that's natural ability. Uh, you know, he had an extraordinary voice. He had an extraordinary presence in court. You wanted to listen to him. You wanted to look at him. So he held a room that is, that's not manufactured. That's just who he was. He had that, that personality. Um, For Mark, Mark was uh, an incredibly, um, a special mix of an appellate lawyer who had a real understanding of how a trial played out. So notwithstanding that he was not a trial lawyer, you know, to be an effective appellate advocate, you have to understand what is happening in a courtroom, the nuances of it, the import of it, because when it's on paper, it sort of loses um, its uh, its texture and context. He had that intuitively. Uh, he approached everything in a way that, you um, was the way the law should be, that a reasonable person would approach it, that an empathetic person would approach it. He he just always sounded so reasonable that, you know, when he was appearing before before the appellate courts, there's such high regard for him. But I I think the one thing I wanna stress for anybody who's listening, particularly lawyers and young lawyers, is that as litigators, whether you were a, a trial litigator or an appellate litigator, Eddie and Mark, had grounded and always grounded all their litigation in the law. They did not go into a case and just sort of think about the law as an aside. You know, you structured your cross examination or you structured your defense of the case on the law. Like it was based on what you could do in cross, what you can do, uh, you know, the substantive elements of it. And you would always start there. There was no case we did that didn't have multiple legal memos that had been generated for Eddie to look at different components of it. So the architecture of the defense of the case or the architecture of an appellate case requires you to, to frame it in that context. And uh, it's really important for people to understand that I think it's self-evident when you're litigating in an appellate context. I do not think it's self-evident when you're in a trial court. And so people should know that we spend a great deal of time in every single case, every single case, discussing the law, educating ourselves about the law, framing the case within the, the, the legal boundaries. And that as Mark always used to say, made it virtually impossible to appeal from a case that Eddie had litigated because he'd raised everything. It wasn't as though you would think of it on appeal. He had done it. He had set up a record and he had canvassed all issues that that is, you know, an important quality for uh, people to understand uh, in terms of all the things that went into making them, you know, the great lawyers that they were. Mm -hmm.
0: Absolutely. I mean, with both of them, with those descriptions, you mentioned intuition, they both had this intuition. So do you think skills, cross-examination skills are, you know, you're born with it, you have it, or it's something that could be learned?
1: It's a combination. I think you can learn a great deal of it. I think you can, it is forensic. I think there is a process and a way to develop your cross-examination skills that will make you a great cross examiner, you know, will it make you the top five of history? Probably not, because when you then add to that um, the innate skill, the innate presence, your instinct, uh, those are things that are definitely just talents that you're you're you have and that are uh, part of your makeup. So, you know, you might not have those incredible dazzling moments, but you will have a lot of great moments. You will be very, very good at what you do. Sure, you can learn to do it forensically. Absolutely. It is, uh, it is, an, uh, it is something that you can study.
0: Right. My favorite line in your whole book I want to read, and this is the only sentence I'll read in the book, just, just this one. Okay. Eddie wasn't looking for indentured servitude, but rather for unwavering commitment to the work and the office to the exclusion of everything else. Is that uh, right. uh, required being a criminal lawyer or being a, a lawyer in general? How much commitment is required? Or, you know, millennials, my generation is a bit more balanced, let's say. Um, you know, do you, do you have the same expectations of your staff being there till 11 a.m., 11 p.m.?
1: Well, no, I don't think it's about requirements, right? It, it's about what you want out of your life, it's about what you where you place your priorities and everybody structures those deeply personal priorities um, differently. Right. Mm -hmm. So you can choose not to work in an office like that because it doesn't give you satisfaction and joy uh, and it doesn't give you uh, the fulfillment. So what you put in, you're not getting out sort of an equal measure. So look, there is no rule as to how you should live your life. There is no rule as to uh, the type of practice you have to have you can practice criminal law in a variety of different places and in different uh, for prosecution, for defense, different firms. You can hang up your own shingle. Uh, and that is true of law in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's no one way. Uh, I, I understand that. And, um, you know, whether it's millennials or a different approach, that's fine. But for me, uh, you know, Eddie wasn't doing that because uh, because of some overarching value. It was because he loved it, right? That's what's driving it. If you do not love it, you probably shouldn't be doing it. But if you love something, you want to do more of it. You want to do it constantly. And it's a passion, right? The same way that, you know, a painter uh, doesn't sleep because they're painting all night constantly. You wouldn't say, "Geez, that what you require to be a really good painter? You have to work that hard? It's because they're passionate about it. And so for him, you know, for for Mark, for me, uh, I love it. I love what I do. I am engaged um, emotionally and mentally by the work. So that's why I'm there at 10 or 11. That's why Eddie was there. He loved it. It wasn't because, you know, he wasn't there to to make you work hard just because he wanted to see you suffer. He was there because he loved what he was doing and he understood what it took. And you don't have to do it. If you don't want to do it, nobody's forcing you to. I mean, you can choose to live your life in whatever way and whatever um, calibration works for you. So that was his. It's, it's, you know, it was mine. That's why it worked for me. Um, I I loved it. I, I didn't. I didn't want to be anywhere else. I I didn't. Did I care if I was missing family events? No, I wasn't sitting there feeling sad about it. I was loving what I was doing. You know, I'm not saying it's not a grind. Often it's it's a grind. It's hard. That's why it's called hard work. Um, but as my mother, you know, reminded me of recently, about two weeks into the my articling, I called her and I said, "This is my place. This is where I want to be. Uh, like I found the place I need to be because this was." the thing that was so fascinating to me so you know the rest of it I was prepared to pay a price for that I was prepared to pay um a personal price for that as well that was my choice nobody forced it on me I could have left
0: right yeah you were there for I think 11 years it's a it's a long time um any specific things that you can say you learned from there or just a bit of everything
1: Oh, well, I mean, uh, the the, the practice of law is what I learned there, how to be a lawyer. Um, You know, you come in with certain innate abilities, right? There are many people that went through that firm. For me, it was the right environment. For me, it allowed me to have access to people who I believe were extraordinary lawyers who had skills that I was wanting to develop you know, I I wasn't um, there to imitate or replicate, but I was there to learn. Mm -hmm. And so talk about one on one mentoring, what is better than preparing a trial and then seeing Eddie execute the cross examination? I mean, I wasn't sitting there like a lump on a log. I was watching what he was doing. I was wondering why he went this way as opposed to, you know, he turned left instead of right. And then I would discuss it with him. I'd ask him, like, why'd you do that? How'd you know to do that? How'd you know to deal with the witness in that way? Or you know, why didn't you go here? You know, and there was a moment for me many, many years into it, where as I was watching it, I could feel like I was lockstep with him in the sense that it was intuitive, what the next move was, you know, and when you get there at that moment, for me, I felt, okay, I've got this now, I've got it enough to be able to be doing it on my own. Um, But I was, I was watching everything, I was consuming all of it. And, and, just obsessed with it. I wanted to know how Mark would prepare his oral arguments for the Court of Appeal. So I'd ask him, I would go look at his notes. Even when he wasn't in the office, I'd sort of sneak in when I knew he had an appeal the next day. And I, but like, I'd look at, what have you done with the casebook? What have you done with the factum? How have you drafted your notes? I I wanted to know the mechanics of it. I wanted to know the thought behind it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't punishment for me. I was loving what I was doing and learning.
0: Right. So, I mean, it sounds like it was a great experience to, to have those mentors right. and to be there for all that time. Um, I mean, putting yourself in the shoes of other junior partners and lawyers at firms, um, you said how you were capable enough to go on your own and you were kind of, you write right in the book, ready to spread your own wings. But to, can you go into a bit more of that um, thought process about when someone is perhaps ready or not ready to go on their own leave a comfortable firm, a good firm and, and hang up their own shingle. Uh, Is there any factors there?
1: No, there, I I mean, I'm the last person to ask about that because if you read my book, you know, it's like virtually, it was a decision I made over the weekend. I just decided it was time for me to go. I had always wanted to have my own firm. I'd always wanted to be first on the letterhead My name means a great deal to me Uh, being female uh, and uh, leading was a very important thing to me personally. I wanted to see how far I could go and whether I would fail or succeed. I I didn't know. Uh, There was no great uh, plan uh, in terms of how I would do this. There there was actually zero um, planning on my part. Probably not good advice, probably not the way you should do it. But on one hand, you know, being a little bit, uh, fearless uh, having some perspective because in this profession you're not going to be a pauper you're going to be able to make a living you're if it fails there are lots of other positions you can get it's not as though uh, you know we are suffering in the way that many people who um, have a lot less opportunity and flexibility in changing their their jobs, um, do, and that's the, the majority of people. So you know as lawyers, we've got a lot of uh, a pretty wide berth in terms of the types of practices we can have. And so that gives you also the opportunity to take some risk. And um, you know it's a, it's a risk that's a measured and calculated risk because you've got a degree, you've got a profession that you always have. So whether it's your own shingle or at a large firm or whatever, there are many, many options. And so I think being a little bit fearless is um, is helpful.
0: Right. Absolutely. So um, during uh, my research reading about you for this interview, um, also one of those early days in Canada, uh, as I arrived, we came from South Africa where there was crime and murder and all that. We came to Canada, Toronto, one of the safest places in the world. And within a, a short time of us arriving, there was the Matty Baranowski murder and uh, i right. discovered that you were a defense counsel uh, over there yes. and i remember my father driving us to school and saying what we left south africa and we come here and we we have this in the the neighborhood why mm-hmm. why did we leave south africa to come to this what i discovered is that was uh, the first case that eddie gave you when you're on in your own he gave you that case to to run with it i was curious why why that case why did he decide out of all the cases to give you that one and uh, well,
1: yeah, I was running that case. It was a legal aid murder case, so I was doing it at the preliminary inquiry stage. So it, it was a case that I was counsel on, um, and, and so it sort of he he was um, fine to have it follow me, uh, and the, that's sort of the 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 totality of that. It was just that it had uh, come into the office originally, and I started with it and had done the preliminary inquiry and the expectation was I was going to do the trial.
0: Uh Okay. Um, Maybe this is what you learned from uh, the Greenspan days. Maybe you've developed your own policy on when do you decline a file? When, how do you decide whether to take or decline a file?
1: Well, I I have developed my own policy. Again, I think it's deeply personal. Uh, You know, there are some lawyers that choose that they, they decide that they want to do a certain type of work. There's nothing wrong with that as a criminal lawyer. Uh, there are other lawyers that will take it all. There are other lawyers that define it based on interest level. So, you know, for me, there are a lot of different factors as to when I will and will not take a case on. Um, and part of it at this level, at this age, um, you know, in my career, uh, part of it is interest. Uh, it's a significant portion of it is that if I'm interested in it, if it's a big fight, I generally like it. Um you know, if it's a client that I think I can work with, I think that's very important—the dynamic between you and your your client. I won't work for clients that I find won't take advice uh, and just think you're a mouthpiece as a lawyer, and that I'm just supposed to be, you know, following instructions like a robot. That's not going to happen. Uh, so that wouldn't be a good environment or a good dynamic, and I would not act for clients that I feel that that's what their expectation is. I will send them to lawyers that can work well with that type of person. Um. So th- that's a very significant factor for me. So it's not driven by the offense. It's not driven by the, it's often driven by interest. But significantly, is it a client that I feel the, that it'll be productive? Because you know, your client has to have confidence in you and you have to be able to work with your client. Otherwise, it's you know, the war that you're going into, which is you've got enough people coming at you and you've got enough, things that you have to deal with and fight for for your client you do not need to be fighting with your client as well it just doesn't work for me
0: fair enough um cooperative clients are or go a long way um do you regret ever taking on a file I mean, no. just to just to say I spoke to Alan Dershowitz in the past, and he says he regrets ever getting involved with uh, Epstein. Now, you don't have anything as controversial as that, but anything uh, you wish you wouldn't have taken on?
1: I think there are allegations against Mr. Dershowitz. Yes. So yes. That, that's fair, a fair point of regret. I understand. No, I don't.
0: Okay. Do you think about your reputation at all when taking on a client?
1: I haven't been charged with a crime. So no, my reputation is intact.
0: Right. No. Okay.
1: Um, I mean, if you're thinking of those things, you probably should be doing a case, right? Right. That That's yeah. true. If, if I'm thinking about myself and representing someone, that's a good sign that probably I'm not a good lawyer for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine. Uh, but if you're not able to check yourself and take yourself out of it, cause you're not about the, it's not, the case is not about you. Um, And you can't be objective and forensic and neutral and you are engaging with these other considerations then it's not good for you. You shouldn't do it. Mm
0: -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, having said that, I think criminal lawyers are the most altruistic part of our profession. There's a lot of giving there, being there for other people. I mean, I do estates and real estate. It's a bit more um, transactional, if you will, not as uh, much civil liberties on the line. So I really respect criminal lawyers, the work they do.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, it is it is definitely not transactional because everything's on the line. You know, there is and I understand where money is on the line and it's your livelihood that that's also can be profoundly meaningful. And in family law, it's, it's, it's very difficult. I get all that. But dealing particularly with criminal law, it is, you know, when you say everything's on the line, that is not an understatement. You know, your job mm-hmm. is on the line, your freedom is on the line, your family is on access to your family is on the line often. Uh, everything is on the line. You know, you started this podcast talking about this young boy charged with a crime in high school. And what's the first thought, you know, the first thought was his life's over. That is correct. That is what people think that is in fact very much how you feel. And that is what you are dealing with when you are representing people. And, you know, we represent also uh, uh, victims of crime in our, in our office. So we, we, that is not unusual. Criminal lawyers routinely represent victims of crime. Um, and, you know, it's it's all of that is is very, very uh, emotionally fraught. And and you're dealing with people that are at the one of the lowest points in their lives. So, you know, to be representing someone and thinking, how is this going to impact me? And it's not that you don't, that, that can happen. You, at that point, you just got to say, okay, well, I'm, I'm considering things that aren't about my client, and so this is not, for a lot of reasons, just not a good case for me to be doing.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, um, there's been some interesting things with uh, some of your cases. You mentioned representing victims. Why? Why would a victim need a lawyer? And also, in I think one of your cases, the witnesses hired lawyers. Why would a witness need a lawyer, or a victim need a lawyer in a criminal case? What? Explain that a bit, please.
1: Well, first of all, I, I also do civil cases, but um, for uh, victims who are navigating the process, for example, they often feel it, that it is helpful to have an independent lawyer whose obligation is only to them to A, explain the process, to navigate them through the process, to liaise with the police or the Crown. Uh, people will come to you when they want advice about what their options are. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, should I report to the police, should I sue this person, what what is the advice and what are the results of the different processes, so you will represent them there. Um, In certain cases you have standing uh, to litigate certain issues like third party records where um, a, a, a victim, a witness has actual standing to have counsel and make submissions. In civil cases, we uh, and I have represented uh, victims in um, allegations uh, against uh, individuals uh, of sexual abuse. I mean, it's no we involved. We were involved in the Weinstein case, representing victims. Um, so th- there is, um, and others that obviously are never made public. Um, so there's a lot of reasons that um, people in the justice system, whether they're accused or victims uh, or witnesses. Need assistance?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so, a, f- a bunch of other questions here. One is uh, uh, in the sentencing phase. Uh, Daniel Kahneman, a behavioral psychologist, wrote a book and he started off by saying it's a book called Noise and how in the sentencing phase in America, there's too much discrepancy. So, what would appear on paper to be identical crimes have sentencing variations of, let's say, three to seven years, and some two people could be convicted of exactly the same crime on paper, and one have a three-year sentence and one have a seven-year sentence. Do you have any comments about the discrepancy or variation in sentencing?
1: Absolutely. Um, The uh, crime may be the same, but the person committing the crime isn't the same. The circumstances are never the same. And uh, individuality, discretion in sentencing, is a value it's not a negative um we cannot treat all people the same because they're not all the same their experiences are not the same you know in the united states they had the sentencing guidelines which was effectively a mechanical formula as to what your sentence should be didn't matter what your background didn't matter if you were you know high on drugs when it happened whether you're an addict whether you have a lousy background whether you've had none of that mattered you just get the same sentence and you know, that creates a lot of inequality, actually, that, 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 that fosters a complete lack of humanity in the criminal justice system. And ultimately, they've deviated from the sentence and guidelines, although they provide still guidance in the United States. Uh, but discretion is a positive, it's not a negative. And so I think it's, it's pretty superficial to say, well, first, it's the same crime, so they should all get the same offense. You know, you can both steal $1,000 but if I'm stealing $1,000 to support a gambling habit, uh, or I'm stealing $1,000 to feed my kids, it's a different set of circumstances. It's the same crime, but it's a different set of circumstances. And I think we would all agree that you don't get the same sentence in those cases, that I should look at what your experience is. In Canada, we have Glad to Do reports which deal with the Indigenous experience, life experience, which is a huge contributor and a huge factor that statutorily, Uh, courts are required to take into account. So yes, for example, an Indigenous offender may not get the same sentence as somebody else. They might get a a lesser sentence. There is nothing wrong with that. That is in fact correct and humane and individualized. And the justice system, while it has to be even-handed and while it has to be objective, it is wrong to equate that with same. Uh, Sameness is not objectivity. Sameness is not um, impartial. Uh, so you can be objective, you can be impartial, but you can also be humane, and you can be empathetic, and you can be individualized in your, uh, your um, application of those principles. So, I, I mean, I couldn't disagree more strongly about that mm-hmm. attitude.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you the way you described it, that there must be room for individual differences. But I think that was based on trying to eliminate the racial issues there that certain um, backgrounds kind of attract higher or lower sentences. So I think that's the, uh, where it came from, the sentencing guidelines. But you know, within that, no?
1: Well, no, but I agree with that. I understand the point, which is that uh, you know, racialized accused, and we can see this both in Canada and the United States, the over-incarceration of uh, um, uh, Black Americans, of Indigenous Canadians uh, is shocking. There's no question they get sentenced, charged more frequently, Uh, policed more actively, um, and uh, sentenced more harshly. Uh, The answer isn't, we'll give the white guy the same sentence. The answer is, there's a problem, right? That if sentencing is racialized, if justice is racialized, increasing sentences doesn't help. I promise you the only people that will suffer will be once again, the people that are marginalized. So I understand the problem. But the problem is who's doing the sentencing the problem is who's doing the policing the problem is the lack of discretion uh, when you had mandatory minimums in the united states and the three strikes rule right that equalizes who do you think suffered most that's responsible for mass incarceration mm-hmm. so look there's a lot of theories about how to deal with it but i do not think standardized sentencing is going to near to the benefit of the people who are at the short end of the stick in the in the criminal justice system. I just don't.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, we're touching upon justice over here, and I've heard you describe justice as the right to a hearing, to a to a trial, and and that's almost the extent of it. Um, having said that, have you experienced? Do you have any um, you know baggage about injustices that you've seen or witnessed in your in your life here in Canada?
1: we know we have because we have numerous wrongfully convicted uh, individuals that have subsequently been exonerated. So we know that. uh, You know, we know we've had a forensic pathologist that that resulted in many, many people going to jail and being convicted of murder or pleading to murder when they should not have been. Um, That's Dr. Smith in Ontario. Uh, so we know there are injustices. We know daily there are injustices because we've got a, a ridiculously uh, racialized incarcerated population. It's, it's, it's heavily weighted uh, by race. Uh, so we know those injustices occur. Uh, you know, and when, when I said that's all you're entitled to, it's not that you're entitled to just a hearing. It, it's sort of, um, it's somewhat dismissive being phrased that way. What you're entitled to is an impartial judge what you're entitled to is objectivity. What you're entitled to is a right to be heard. And you say, we say these things because we live with them and we assume them. But in so many countries, what I am saying right now is aspirational. I can give you list, chapter and verse where the idea, if I were to say to you, I mean, where I come from, when you, you talk to people often from the Middle East, you say, well, you're going to have a fair hearing. They're stunned by it. They don't think so. They think that someone's paying the judge because that's what you do in a lot of countries. Someone's paying the prosecutor. That is, that is the way people live. There is no access to, to a just resolution of disputes. So it's not nothing, it's everything, right? And, and when you see incursions into that, whether they be political or social, when people are trying to interfere and put pressure on on courts to come to certain decisions. Well, that's where when it's being threatened, when we should be really careful about that. So it's not nothing. Like okay? it is a very very significant gift uh, to democratic society and to this country that you have an objective, impartial judiciary and independent bar and the opportunity to be heard. That's what you get. You're not guaranteed to win. No one's. If we're guaranteeing people wins and we're guaranteeing results. And we're guaranteeing people that they will be believed no matter what and they will that's the end of it then we're not talking about the system that we have we're talking about something very different
0: absolutely i I couldn't agree more i feel also honored to be part of such a respectable uh, legal system over here in in canada um so the pace of change in in criminal law i know in estates and real estate the pace of change is like i would say once a decade or something there's there's a change T- Tell me um, about the pace of change in criminal law, and uh, what are the big ones?
1: It is well, all I mean, constant. It is rapid fire. It is really, really part of your life. That's why I find um, I find that work so fascinating. Uh, you know, it's litigated at the provincial court, at superior court, at the appellate court. The, every day, um, you can see uh, just by looking at what cases are released and the judgments that are released that issues are litigated and rethought. So you think of all the changes about search and seizure and warrant requirements that were occurring when the charter just gets, you know, gets passed in 82 and I'm in school in 80, I graduate in 89. So four years into the charter's existence, we're just thinking about, well, what does search and seizure mean? What can the state do? When can they stop you? When can they frisk you? When can they they execute a warrant? Do you need judicial authorization for a warrant or a wiretap? Okay, fast forward now, we're dealing with Phones. We're dealing with you having your entire life on your phone and a customs officer being able to look at it or a police officer being able to look at it. And so now we're litigating what is search and seizure in the context of this environment. Mm-hmm. The law is criminal law is constantly, constantly changing. And you're absolutely right because I've been doing some work, as I said, in civil litigation that when I go to look at the law, because that's my first stop always. It's pretty paltry, Like, there's not a lot of litigation around very fundamental principles that you would say, oh, there must be, you know, a hundred cases like give me the most recent 10 top appellate cases. And you get an answer saying, well, there's one superior superior court judgment 10 years ago. It's it's very surprising to me because in my, you know, practice area that I've spent so much time in, if I were to say to a lawyer, well, give me the top 10 search and seizure cases, section eight. I mean, you couldn't limit it to 10 this year. I mean, you couldn't limit it to 10 this month. So it's constantly, constantly changing and developing and being refined and being explained. And so it's fascinating. Uh, But you're absolutely right. In civil litigation, because things aren't litigated, I think that's part of it. You know, they're resolved often. Mm -hmm. The litigation is rare. It's, It's not the norm. Whereas for us, it's the norm because you have no option if you're charged. You have to litigate. In civil litigation, it often resolves. It it often never gets to uh, the merits, and so you know it's an entire practice and bar that isn't. You know they're not sitting there agonizing over what the latest principles are in in trust law or the latest principles are in property law. Um, it arises, and occasionally cases ultimately get litigated. But you're right. It's a very very. Um, it's a much narrower field, and. I have to say, I find that fascinating because, you know, I love thinking about law. And when you're doing civil litigation, it's a bit of a wide open field. Mm-hmm. It's interesting.
0: Yeah, but more stable as well. So, I mean, in Canada, the last few years, um, cannabis became legal. That's, I think, a big criminal law development. Um, wondering, what was your involvement uh, there, if any? I, I read you may have been involved with that, That, if anything. And uh, the follow-up no, to that.
1: No. No, no, I've done, you know, I've done cases historically when it was all being litigated. Um, but that was not the the sort of mantle that I carry. There are a lot of lawyers, uh, Professor Alan Young, one of the most significant, who really spent a lot of time litigating uh, legalization. Um, so th- that's not uh, that's not something that I focused on. But what an extraordinary change for society. Right. right.
0: So, I mean, that's a big one, Uh, whereas uh, someone would be uh, charged now, now it's legal. Are there any other things that uh, you want to see like that become legal and maybe take a whole lot, load a docket off a criminal law, criminal lawyer's desk, you know, what what should be legalized as well, do you think?
1: Well, other drug offenses, Uh, and there are countries that deal with even hard drugs as being an addiction, a different type of social problem, not one that's solved by incarceration. I think that would be very, very helpful. And there's some discussion about uh, thinking about it and, and being more flexible in how we deal with that. Mm-hmm. Um, impaired driving, which consumes a lot of the docket, there are different models to dealing with it. And for example, British Columbia with the support of Mad, um, have a different approach, which allow it to be, for example, dealt with rather than as a criminal trial, as a provincial offense with a similar, like the same suspension. Uh, that's a significant thing because those cases bog down the system and there's no benefit to an accused pleading guilty. Like there's no, you can lose a trial or you can not have a trial, you end up in the same place. So uh, British Columbia has a system where you can actually plead down to a provincial offense. It's had a significant impact, something that Ontario certainly should consider. Um, but the big one, I think, for me would be uh, the drugs and also getting rid of mandatory minimums, which the uh, government has recently proposed getting rid of a lot of the mandatory minimums that have been in place for several years now. I think that, that those are two places we need to really think about.
0: What, what would be the effect of getting rid of mandatory minimums?
1: Less incarceration, uh, less incarceration uh, for and more discretion in sentencing. Mm-hmm.
0: So um, when I was also preparing for, to speak with you, I spoke to my neighbor, a criminal law lawyer, and he said, uh, your, your case, your previous case made it more difficult to look into the background, people's sexual history as a background. Now, um, I've heard you say as part of a case, uh, a complainant, uh, their sexual background should be relevant because that's exactly part of the case. And now uh, apparently you have to bring a, a, a separate application to get that heard. What's, what's the story there, the development around the background of sexual that's, complainants?
1: Okay no, that, that's not correct. First of all, um, I, I was not the person who litigated uh, the case is called C Boyer and then subsequently Darrow, which is ages ago, uh, which dealt with um, limiting access to sexual history of a complainant. And that makes perfect sense because historically you just need to understand what the history of, of the law of evidence is on that. Uh, historically, an unchaste complainant uh, was, uh, worthy of less credibility, right? So there were these gendered theories around women that were nonsensical, but just silly. And so eventually, eventually, um, the court said, you can't just ask about sexual history. It's not a free for all because it's not relevant. It has nothing to do with the price of gas. I mean, we, we ask tough questions if they're relevant mm-hmm. to the case. We don't ask tough questions for the fun of, humiliating somebody, that's that's not the game, right? That's not the point of it. So in C. Boyer and in Dara, they, um, they focused, and there's of course legislation um, in the criminal code about when you can and cannot get into prior sexual history. It's very constrained, it's very rare. It makes sense because it is very rarely relevant. So that has nothing to do with my cases. That's just the law. I think probably what he's referring to is the use of um, the use of emails or of communications, electronic communications, and um, whether you can cross-examine a complainant on them without disclosing them, and that has been litigated all the way to the Supreme Court, um, and we'll see where that, you know, ultimately how we deal with that, um, and I believe that's what he, he's referring to, as to whether or not you can put to a witness without giving them notice um, their prior um, their prior communications with an accused. And uh, certainly where there are communications of a sexual nature, they would fall within the parameters of um, prior sexual history. So you'd have to bring an application and get it litigated.
0: So did you have any involvement in, in that process, having to bring an application or I was mistaken there?
1: I think, I think what he's referring to is it was referred to as the Gomeshi rule because it followed that trial. Um, And quite frankly, if you pick up the uh, transcripts, you would know it's not accurate. Um, That's not what occurred, but in any event, um, there were rules around when could you, um, could you put to a witness their own words uh, and their own communications and whether you had to give them notice and whether you had to get uh, leave from the court effect, effectively to put this type of evidence. Um, so that's what that relates to.
0: Okay, um,
1: nice. I'm, I'm wondering also
0: these days we're living with uh, COVID, this pandemic. How's it affected affected you and your practice? Um, and then the follow up for that is, could you foresee or have you even had any COVID related charges or convictions or anything?
1: So no, no to the COVID-related charge that I can think of. I, I, other people in my office have had some some stuff, but um, in terms of how it's affected my practice, probably the same way as um, it's affected really everybody. Uh, you know, we were able to pivot and work largely from home, uh, as you know most firms did. But we're in the business of litigation, and it's very hard to litigate by Zoom. It's hard to even do an interview by Zoom because you're not. You know, there's something about the personal dynamic um, that is completely, completely lost. Uh, So I I think it's been challenging for most litigators. You know, it's easier. You can litigate. (laughs) You don't have to get out of your house, uh, which is nice. But I don't think it's particularly nice for the people who are engaging with the system, witnesses and accused people. I think it depersonalizes it. And I think it's been really hard. Uh, I think the assumption that anyone has a computer in a private space and can just turn their computer on and testify is silly, that's not true. Uh, Most people don't have that. Uh, And so, you know, when you're dealing already with a system that is uh, apart from members of the public and is um, um, opaque to members of the public, it's even more removed when you're doing it through a computer. And so I think there there have been some negatives to this. Um, There have been some positives. We've streamlined. We've become more efficient. We've become somewhat technologically current, not 100%. Um, But the other thing is for lawyers and young lawyers listening to this podcast, it's really hard. And we have lawyers in our office who've joined the firm or who have graduated and joined the firm. And their first year or two of practice has been entirely during the pandemic they've had no one-on-one mentoring. They've not had to be, they've not had the opportunity to watch a courtroom. Like part of the fun of the practice is you go into a courtroom and you get to talk to other lawyers and you get to see what they're doing and they don't have any of that. And so it's really, really hard to, um, to try to make sure the young lawyers are getting the experience they need. And I think they have lost a lot in the last few years because of the pandemic.
0: Absolutely just practically speaking, uh, the accused is uh, in jail. Do you have to go visit them or these days do the does the jail have a video thing you can set
1: up? The jails have very limited video access, um, which has been part of the problem uh, during the course of this pandemic. They have little limited access to have video rooms where you can either meet with or litigate. Um, so you know some jails will have five, and there are hundreds of people there that have cases that day so uh, they've been brought to court. You know, my, my colleague Danielle had a case where her client was the only one in court because there was no video room and everybody else had to be on Zoom. So can you imagine that the client is sitting in court alone, entirely alone, um, and everyone else is, is dialing in by Zoom. So it's been challenging and it's been, you know, there have been a lot of odd circumstances. Uh, you can go and visit clients, uh, people have, uh, but not all clients are in jail, right? So there are clients that are on bail um but it's been challenging for sure
0: absolutely just to switch gears a little bit i'm all for freedom of speech and expression and again i enjoyed your book another quick plug and when i read how the toronto district school board banned it from a a book club i was uh disappointed and hurt and i thought you know your story needs to be heard by many it's a great story you know, an immigrant coming and, and uh, you know, landing up as a top lawyer over here. Do you have any comments about that? I mean, I, I don't know if there's been any updates since then, if they've uh, retracted their ban. But yep. uh, well,
1: they, There are a couple of updates. They did retract their ban. Um, good. We haven't had a, um, a, a TDSB-focused uh, event, but we are having an event actually this Saturday because a number of lawyers were very annoyed with that and thought it was perfect. To the work that we do as defense lawyers, as crown attorneys, uh, as people involved in the justice system. So we're having a national book club this Saturday with high school students across the country. We've got lawyers from across the country, and it's free and it's an opportunity for high school students all over Canada to ask us questions and ask me questions about the justice system and what we do and how you become a lawyer and all of that. So that's been po- that's positive that grew out of it. Um, but you know th- this idea of censorship, which uh, you know we're not the first people to be talking about it. It is rampant, um, and it's rampant everywhere. You know there are books being taken out of libraries, there are books being taken out of schools, there are um, people being uh, precluded from speaking because their views are, um, you know, viewed as as being not the norm or fringy, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so i think we're really struggling with uh, our approach to education as a whole and our approach to um hearing opposing views as a as a culture uh, we seem to think that if someone tells us something that we disagree with that that will automatically trigger us or is a is a microaggression or a big aggression and you know, sometimes you are going to hear things that you not only disagree with, you find offensive. Uh, that's sort of part of the value of freedom of speech because you have to remember what you think is offensive is, is obviously a personal decision. And historically, uh, the people who've been silenced are marginalized, disadvantaged, unpopular views, views that now you would say, well, oh my gosh, Uh, You know, speaking of South Africa, Nelson Mandela was on the terrorist list. He would have been viewed at the time as being outrageous. Somebody who should not be allowed to speak, who should be silenced. You wouldn't think of saying that now. But that's the point of it. Right. The point of of speech is that sometimes to get at the good stuff, you have to withstand a lot of garbage and um, we can't. There's no one person who can decide what's good, what's valuable, what's going to move us along in society and what's pure garbage which means you have to let people talk and you have the opportunity to respond. You can turn it off, you can disagree, you can, but shutting conversation down and shutting speech down, I don't think, except for the rarest of circumstances, I don't think really helps us as a society. Um, I think it just, you know, you, you may not see it, but they're not going away. They're still saying it. They're just saying it to people who agree with them. And so, It's unfortunate for a lot of reasons that that's the reaction.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, we can have a whole long conversation about what should be banned or shouldn't be banned and all the misinformation out there. It's a whole discussion in itself. But uh, on the balance of probabilities, let's say I'm all for free speech and a book like yours should definitely be out there. So um, yeah, (laughs) lean towards freedom, if anything. Um, Right. A couple of more questions. You've been great. And thank you for your time so far. Um, just to end with a couple more questions. One is when I was uh, first called to the bar, I spoke to one of our top criminal lawyers in my community. He's since become a judge. And uh, his advice to me was categorical. If you want to make a living, stay away from criminal law. And uh, I mean, I don't know if it was based on what he said or not, but I I listened to that advice. Uh, You know, what would you say to, uh, let's say, third year law students now? Should they pursue a career in criminal law? What's your take on that?
1: Uh, They should pursue a career in what they love. And there are a lot of sacrifices in criminal law. Some of them can be financial uh, and you don't get necessarily what you'll get paid on Bay Street, Um, but you have to do that because you love it. I mean, you take that, that's a calculated risk that I was talking about earlier. If it's more important to you uh, to, uh, to get a very, very certain salary uh, then yes, this would not be the profession for you because there is a certain amount of risk in it. Um, I wouldn't dissuade anyone, uh, but I would say that you have to really feel like this is something you want to commit yourself to. It's not something that you can check out of at five o'clock. It's going to be with you all the time, and it's going to it's going to cause some very fundamental changes in you personally, and it's going to cause some you know, some impacts on how you choose to live your life. That goes back to the very thing, first thing we were talking about, which is you, you've got to think about, you know, what you want your life to be like, what you're, what prices you're willing to pay for certain things and, and where you want to calibrate it. And again, very different for every different person. You, you know, you got to find your own strike zone that works for you. you but think, if you're trying uh... to make a big buck, this wouldn't be the first stop for sure as a guaranteed place. You can do it, but it's not, it wouldn't be a guarantee.
0: Right. Uh, Do you think someone can dabble in criminal law or it's like an all-in type thing just based on all the changes you speak of? Do you think uh, someone could take on a file here and there or it's an all-in type field?
1: Well, uh, you know, it requires a a great deal of uh, knowledge and experience. So dabbling is pretty dangerous, particularly when what you're dabbling with is somebody's life. Right. Um, But what I would say is historically, if you think about the true barristers of England and barristers as they used to be here in Canada and Ontario... Those lawyers that were real litigators would do a civil jury trial and then a criminal jury trial. They would do it all. Um, so I think you have the capacity to do that, uh, but it's very difficult, and you know you have to have a lot of expertise. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would, I would be very nervous about just dabbling.
0: Mm-hmm. As a last question, um, give advice to either law students or your younger self. Um, myself, either way, just the last bit of wisdom to us all.
1: Well, my, my, uh, my main piece of advice is always to have confidence. Uh, you know, this profession is tough for a lot of reasons. It's tough because it doesn't necessarily attract the most generous group of people. It's, it's they're tough people. Everyone's fighting hard. Uh, it's pretty competitive. And then there's all this external stuff. And so when you combine all of that, it becomes often very personally difficult to navigate it. You have to have confidence in yourself. As I always say, why is anyone gonna believe you if you don't believe in yourself? Why are they gonna listen to you if if you don't wanna listen to yourself? You know That confidence is part of what people are paying for when they come to retain you as their lawyer. Can you imagine if you went to a doctor and they were nervous and falling apart and and crying and not sure of themselves? You'd say, I'm out of here. I'm not going to risk my life and I'm not going to hand my life over to someone who doesn't know what they're doing. You have to have confidence in yourself. You have to have confidence in your decisions and you have to have confidence that, you know, you know what you're capable of. And a lot of times that involves shutting the rest of the noise out.
0: Uh Last question. Um, you, you mentioned in uh, the, the, the description of Eddie and Mark and yourself that you're fearless. Is there a room for fear in criminal law practice? And does anything make you fearful?
1: Making a mistake makes me fearful. Getting the Making the wrong judgment call makes me fearful. Uh, fearful because the consequences are so significant um so that's the thing that makes me nervous or causes me to lose sleep is you know am I doing the right thing am I making the right call am I you know it's all related to how you're executing your job how you're performing and how you're representing your your client that's the stuff I I spend a great deal of time thinking about uh and and trying to make sure I'm I'm making the right decision uh but the rest of it no I'm not I'm not afraid of it
0: yeah Marie, this has been insightful and it's been lovely to connect with you and uh, I'll give Thanks. you the last word here before we sign off and let you go.
1: Well thank you Noah I enjoyed speaking to you I hope the young lawyers listening to this aren't dissuaded from practicing and I, I just I hope they know that we are in a, a very very honorable profession and that we are professionals and that we bring a lot to the way our society and our democracy is is um uh sustained
0: absolutely thank thank you so much until next time